the unions and the regulations and all the stuff around building is largely about insurance. But the problem is you have to have done a certain amount of building to kind of gauge whether it's common sense or whether it's just nonsense. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 241 with Stephen Martin. Stephen Martin is an artist, a farmer, a homesteader, and a builder, and among many other things. And he got in touch with me when he put out his latest book called The Roundhouse, which is all about bioregional building. What is bioregional building? Well, we get into it in the interview, but essentially it's the idea of finding all of your building materials within a hundred mile radius of where you're building the house. And it has a lot of interesting benefits and effects, which we will talk about. Uh, Stephen is a very philosophical and just a great guest. He has a lot of really interesting ideas about just living on this earth that I wanted to share with you. So I hope you stick around. But first, I wanted to let you know that registration for my interactive eight-week tiny house course called Tiny House Considerations is now open. This is like if you want to build a tiny house or buy a tiny house in 2023 and you want the most attention from me that you possibly can get, um, this would be the course. It's a small group setting. My co-instructor is Lina Menard, a multiple-time podcast guest and just a really talented builder and designer. And we take a group of about six or seven or eight of you through the Tiny House Decisions framework and help you plan all of the systems, all of the building methods of your tiny house. It's, it's quite an experience, and it will really help you get your tiny house off on the best foot possible. Um, registration is open now. There's a $100 early bird discount that's happening uh, if you register before the end of the year, so before January 1st. And you can learn more over at thetinyhouse.net slash THC. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash THC. I know what you're thinking, but that stands for Tiny House Considerations. Uh, so check out thetinyhouse.net slash THC, and I hope to see you in class. I am here with Stephen Martin. Stephen Martin is an artist, farmer, wild crafter, builder, teacher, writer, and visionary who has more than 30 years of experience living co-creatively with the earth, practicing traditional living skills of growing food, building, and healing. Stephen created Livingstone and Green Bloom in 1986, Toronto's first green landscaping company. In 1996, he created the Algonquin Tea Company, North America's premier bioregional tea company. He has given talks and run workshops internationally for more than 20 years and taught plant identification and wilderness skills at Algonquin College for 11 years and at the Orphan Wisdom School for eight years. In 2014, Megan and Stephen started the Sacred Gardener Earth Wisdom School. Stephen released his first book, The Story of the Madawaska Forest Garden, in 2016, his second, Sacred Gardening, in June 2017, and The Roundhouse in 2022. Stephen Martin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan. Nice to, nice to be here, or nice to be there, or somewhere. Nice to, for you to have yes, me. Yes, <laughs> we're, we're, we're meeting somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. Meeting somewhere in the cloud. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. So you you sent me your your book The Roundhouse and I, I really enjoyed looking through it and and it it kind of introduced me to the concept of bioregional building. Nice. So can you can you kind of define that for us as as a concept? Yeah. So it's kind of a a bit of a geeky academic term, I guess, bioregional. Uh -huh. 
Um, I don't know if it's ever going to catch on as a thing, but basically it's kind of like if you look at your region, and bioregions are generally defined by watersheds. Okay. Without getting too deep into that, you're looking at your region and you're looking at where the region is losing wealth and where it's, you know, gaining wealth in a sense. Mm -hmm. So the region as organism. And then you start to kind of like, this is on a social scale. This is how you would look at it is like, for example, if we're buying cars and mm -hmm. most of our money is going to go probably to the States, mm -hmm. but just to say, it's not going to stay in the region, but if we're buying, you know, from a market garden or we're buying someone who making furniture or tiny houses or something locally, yeah. then the money's staying in the region. So that's kind of the broader sense of the definition. And, and on a smaller kind of personal way, it's basically trying to get everything local. Okay. So from your food to your materials for building or everything, just start thinking about local. How, how could I do this locally? You know, mm -hmm. Because so much of um, the wealth of our planet is being spent just flying stuff around. <laughs> You know? Yeah, absolutely. And that I know that, that in the building materials industry in particular, there's a lot of kind of global materials, things that are being shipped around the world. Um, you know, most of the most of the wood studs that, that I can buy here in Vermont probably come from somewhere in the southern United States. And I know that, you know, if you're west of the Mississippi, it's a lot of stuff from from the Pacific Northwest. Um, so it sounds like it's about finding building materials locally. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes there's uh, recycled things like skids and things like that, which I know for tiny houses are quite a viable option for quite a few aspects of them. Yeah. But, you know, in general, like say in my area here, for example, we have what's called Eastern cedar or mm -hmm. white cedar. Mm -hmm. There's almost no industry that uses it because it's very inconsistent. It's tensile strength is very inconsistent. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to grade, but if you know wood, it's fantastic wood. And there's lots of local people around here who are, you know, sustainably working their bush with their little mills you know portable mm -hmm. mills yeah and so those are the people you're looking for right as opposed to as you said stuff that's been shipped you know here and around or or certainly uh across country yeah um and and the idea of a of a hundred mile house um was mm -hmm. that kind of inspired by the the hundred mile diet yeah completely I, I tried unsuccessfully to get in touch with those folks before mm -hmm. I stole their idea, but I didn't title my book that way for, for obvious reasons, but yeah. it is the same idea and it really, um, they hit it at the right point or whatever their publicist did. And it actually mm -hmm. became quite a phenomenal book because people hadn't really considered that stuff. And then the whole thing of uh, locavores, yeah. you know, is, is an actual movement which is pretty amazing. So it just shows how one good seed idea can just kind of spread out into things and, and suddenly everybody gets it because we're all ready to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here in Vermont, where I am, there are multiple local lumber operations and, and the tiny house that I built nice. used a lot of local cedar and pine. Um, but I know that that's not the case for everyone, for everywhere. Um, I'm curious, you know, how do you see the concept of a hundred mile house applied, you know, to someone maybe living in a city or, you know, in a place where maybe no trees grow, maybe they live in the desert. Yeah. Well, I mean, really to bring this full circle, if I think of the earth ships, you know, the garbage warrior there, Mm -hmm. Michael, what's his name? 
I don't know his last name. I know who you're talking about, okay. though. Sorry about that. That's okay. You know, the whole idea of that was the same idea was just using regional materials. So they used tires, used tires and pop cans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the probably the most unsustainable aspect, and they didn't really maybe think it through, yeah. of the earth ship thing is the concrete, which is mm. highly problematic in yes. terms of carbon footprint and stuff. But other than that, the idea was really good. And I think the idea is good everywhere. And there's a lot of places, like, say, not like Vermont, mm-hmm. but that are a little bit more degraded environments where you get pretty scrubby trees that generally mills aren't aren't going to use. Yeah. So this is essentially what the roundhouse is built out of, is it's stuff like poplar. Uh-huh. And and things that generally are considered kind of junk wood and used for pulp are fantastic building material. Again, poplar is one of those things that they have a hard time grading grading it and different things like that. So it's mm-hmm. not in the industry, but it's great building wood. And um, you know, so this was the idea. Is I was actually even able to use just uh, windfall or trees that had been flooded out. I didn't even yeah. have to cut any live trees. Wow. Which again is just a, a level of connection with your land and knowing what's going on and kind of what's available for a building, what's presenting itself, right? Yeah. I love that that you were able to to do most of the building without even cutting down any trees, just finding trees that had already been blown down. Um and you you sent me a bunch of really just beautiful photos of the roundhouse. And I, I encourage people to go to the show notes page for this episode, which I'll, I'll announce kind of at the end um, to go and see the photos. But for someone, you know, maybe somebody's in their car driving, listening to this. Can you kind of describe the roundhouse? Like, you know, what it looks like, how big is it? How is, you know, what is it made out of? Sure. Those kinds of things. Sure. Well, it's kind of long-winded, but it <laughs> is it. a stack. <laughs> it is a stack wall cob earth ship. Okay. So it's backed into a hill. It has heavy glazing, and it's stack wall, but it's not made with concrete. It's made with cob and and uh, again, like kind of what's called junk wood, okay, poplar and things like that, softer wood. Um, yeah, so heavily glazed on front. It's uh, it's a kind of an oval. It's not a perfect circle. It's like 16 by 14 or something. Right. We hit a big rock at the very back as we were going into the hill, and that was our limit. That, that was, was the like, stopping okay, point. That's how far we're going in. Yep. So with the stacked wood cob, it looks like you've essentially sliced, sliced wood, kind of created full round logs, for lack of a better term, and then... They look like they're pretty far spaced out and they're kind of set into a cob wall. That's right. Yeah. I don't know if you got to that part in the book, but I talk about working on an earth ship Mm -hmm. and it was a planting retaining wall made with pop cans Mm -hmm. and the pop cans were put too close together. There wasn't enough mortar between them. Okay. And it created a, diagonal fault line and the whole thing kind of fell out and so i kind of uh, i learned from that you know that it could be the same thing with the rounds of the log a diagonal fault could easily form so you had to have at least a few inches kind of between them as tempting as it was to use less cob because it's very labor intensive right but it's one of the things i talk about like um i was part of a you know, a workshop, cob building workshop locally mm-hmm. here. And it was an incredible amount of work. It took like eight of us in the workshop, like a couple days to make part of one wall kind of thing. Wow. So I realized back then that it was like, okay, this is a group activity or somehow you have to make this way more efficient. And so just over time and watching different buildings and, and you know, thinking it through, I thought, really the stack wall thing you save about two-thirds of the volume of cob and then if you look at the diagrams of the way that i do it in the book the cobs also just on the ends of the logs 
So you're saving all that middle, which is another kind of half of the amount of cob. So it ends up not being actually that much cob. Nice. Which, you know, makes it more doable. It was really, to do the whole building, it was probably four people for a month going at it. Okay. Nice. Yeah, that's uh, like, I don't know if it's if it's a joke or I don't know if there's enough like Cobb people out there to joke about Cobb, but it's like, how do you build a Cobb house? Do you like have to have a Cobb workshop in order to do it? Otherwise, it'll take you a decade. Pretty much. Yeah. I heard these great stories about uh, back in the day in the old country, like in Ireland and mm-hmm. stuff, they'd actually layer in the clay and sand on a dirt floor and then they'd have a big uh, party. So they'd invite over everybody over, some fiddlers, some drummers, everyone, and everyone would dance mm-hmm. the floor together. Like they'd nice. work the muck the whole nice. evening. Then you'd have some people come in the next day and actually finish it up, kind of thing. But they did all the work with their dancing. Cool. So you got to think of solutions like that. I don't know if you've ever come across this book. I'd highly recommend it. It's called Gaviotos. It's about this community in Colombia that this very privileged diplomat's son started, and he gathered up all these incredible engineers from all over the place. And it's a really incredible tale about how from basically in uh, a land that's pretty barren in a sense, hard to draw materials from and stuff. Mm -hmm. They created this amazing community and all these products. And one of the things they did was for third world distribution, they created a teeter totter well pump. So the kids playing on the teeter-totter pump would the, be pumping the water, water for the, the town kind of thing. So, you know, we've got to be creative, right? Think yeah. about how to put stuff together, your different needs. Very cool. Very cool. And then, then your floor is kind of imbued in with that music, I was thinking. So true. Yeah. So true. And, you know, I really feel that in the Cobb building we have, mm-hmm. you can actually still see everybody's hand. Yeah. You know, I didn't wipe that out intentionally and make it so you couldn't see any handprints mm-hmm. or any. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of wanted all that feeling. And and so we do a lot of ceremony in there and a lot of things. And I, I feel like everybody who has worked on that building is present and being affected, you know, because nice. we're all connected through the building. Yeah. Um. So is that how did you do the floor of, of the roundhouse? Is that also Cobb? That is. Yeah. And the, the, the primary difference being that you don't need something like straw mm-hmm. to bind the pieces because it, it's, you know, it's just it's horizontal. And so uh, no chance of it kind of cracking and falling apart. Right. Right. But, you know, like with a lot of things with building over the years, I kind of have come to realize that the unions and the regulations and all the stuff around building is largely about insurance mm. and not often about common sense. Mm-hmm. But the problem is you have to have done a certain amount of building to kind of gauge whether it's common sense or whether it's just nonsense. And, you know, the fact is, is that a lot of the regulations are nonsense. Yeah. You know, I talk about it in the book, this thing of, uh, we build stuff now for a once in 200 year storm, they talk about, mm-hmm. and just how incredibly stupid this is because you use four times as much material. And then did it ever occur to somebody that when the storm was going on or at some break in it, someone could go out and actually shovel the roof? Right, right. <laughs> like you wouldn't have to use four times as much material. Like, it's this kind of nonsense, you know, that we're all kind of living like kings and queens or babies mm-hmm. that are completely incapable of responding to our environment right. and the needs of something like a house, you know? Right. Because houses are living beings and they need things too from us. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that is one of the the features or bugs of of modern living is that we don't we're not really encouraged to think about our houses in that way as, as things that we need to really live 
in harmony with, I guess, you know, we all think about, okay, we have to do maintenance. We have to like repaint the house every 10 years, or we have to, you know, replace a fixture that breaks, but not in the way of like responding to natural uh, events, weather events and things and kind of keeping our house going. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's not just in building, it's across the board. Mm -hmm. The phrase that I love is the tyranny of convenience. Mm. It's taken over our world, you know? Everybody wants everything to be so easy and convenient. And because of that, every all the culture of things is actually sacrificed yeah and it's uh it's a it's a powerful tyrant convenience but you know i think there's something inherent in the tiny house thing that is actually going against that i think it requires a, a degree of um discipline and not just discipline but um discernment you have to discern how much space you actually need and what you need for, you know, where and all that kind of minute is what we all have to do with everything. And it's what we used to do out of kind of economic need. Like I was thinking of that before I came on this podcast, Mm -hmm. I thought like up here in the North where I live, everyone had a tiny house, the average house in this area, they're all log houses still that you can see behind me. Mm Mm-hmm was about 16 by 20 yeah (laughs) so this whole trend of and and they would raise like 15 kids in the house which is just like we can't even conceive of being in that house with three people you know so it, it, it can be done it always was done it was part of the whole industrial boom kind of thing that happened after the second world war 50s and 60s and 70s that we started building these stupid big houses people didn't used to have big houses right this is a new thing and it's a stupid thing and it has to do with decadence and you know getting ahead of the joneses Mm -hmm. and all that shit Mm -hmm. right nonsense yeah you know and it was promoted by hollywood and by everything else you know and so people bought into it and it's this movement that you're part of Mm -hmm you know, is, is becoming aware, like, whoa, uh, you need a place to sleep. And that's about it. Like right. basically a lot of stuff can go on outside or in ancillary buildings that don't need heavy duty insulation and yeah. all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And I think that there's a big realization in the tiny house movement that with that smaller house and that living outside of your house, there are so many other advantages, be it just in connection to community or, you know, in just simple dollars and cents, not having to spend as much money to live and then not having to work as much to live. And just like all these life changes kind of flow from that home. Totally. Yeah. Incredible. Eh? Whereas the opposite is true for those big, yes. you know, mansions right. is like you have to cleaning them all the time and you got to fill them with stuff you know because i've lived in quite a few tiny homes and old farmsteads and different places and i can tell you no matter how big your house is you will fill it yep yeah it doesn't matter how small or how big we have this amazing talent to fill (laughs) stuff (laughs) so yeah if you have less space then you totally consider do i need this do i really need this you know and the minimalism definitely I can see and you know, in the media and stuff I can see goes in hand in hand yeah. with the, the tiny house thing. Yeah. I did want to kind of bring a question maybe a bit back to you, sure. see what you think about something here. Because I think about this thing with minimalism. I have been very minimal at points in my life, but I'm not now. And part of it is because I'm a homesteader. But I realized what I am is I'm I'm an anti-consumer. Mm. I don't buy anything new or anything industrial. Uh-huh. But I am not a minimalist. Like I collect wood. If I see someone's throwing out wood or anything good, I collect it. Yep. It goes, it gets packed away, and then I can find a use for it. And I actually do, you know, and it saves me huge. But then, you know, you're talking, I know about having storage and things like that, which are 
maybe a bit environmentally complicated, but I just think it's an interesting and see what you think too discernment between kind of what minimalism and anti-consumerism is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and I it's a great distinction to make. And and I also think that I don't I don't particularly subscribe to any one definition of mim- minimalism. Like I think that it's minimalism is to, to you and it's different what it is to me. Like I have I have four instruments on the wall behind me, but they're all very special to me and they're all for different types of songs and music. Um, you know, someone else might right. say, you don't need four guitars. Excessive. Right, exactly. So, you know, for you, for your life and what you're doing, yeah, you need all those tools. You like In order to be a homesteader, you need a massive number of tools and places to keep them and, and you need land. To, to create the food that you eat. So it, it makes sense to me. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. It is, I guess, all kind of a place, mm-hmm. place and person. Yeah. Um, you know, sense. Yeah. Well, one idea in the book that, that popped out at me and that I was hoping you could kind of expand on is, is the idea that, that the terms kind of natural and green have been kind of stretched to the point of being meaningless. Um, can you can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert about these things, but uh, there's lots of people, probably maybe like where you are. Uh, there's lots of people who, in the last couple of years, have been kind of fleeing the cities and coming up here and and um, trying to homestead. Yeah. And, um, you know, they'll look at efficient homes or, or easy to build homes. Mm. And so they see, and I'm not targeting anything. Mm. This is just an example. And I'm sorry if anyone's offended by this, but they'll see maybe like, um, some kind of prefabricated geodesic dome Mm -hmm. that's all synthetic, right? Mm Mm-hmm seems like a good idea it's inexpensive relatively and blah 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 and you can do it with a wrench and a whatever to put it all together but really i kind of i can't help but feel like this is just another form of colonization mm-hmm. when you're bringing in all these extremely alien materials to a natural site and then you know, you yourself live in this little bubble mm-hmm. that's not at all in any way related to the land where you're actually living. Mm-hmm. And I think about kind of the the oddness of that, the alienness of it all. And then people, you know, they buy all their food. None of their food comes from their land. And then suddenly they're like, oh, I, I feel lost. I don't really have any kind of meaning in my life. <laughs> it's like, well, it's because you're not attached to anything. You're not connected to things, you know? And, you know, it's understandable because that hasn't been made some kind of priority for us. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We don't want to be dependent on things. We don't want to be attached to things. We want to be kind of free-floating. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of, um, it's an illusion, you know? That's not how life works. It's part of us that maybe idealizes about these things but it comes from a place of dysfunction really what we want is embeddedness we want to be embedded in the land Mm. we want to be embedded in our community and this is what gives us meaning and purpose in our life we don't generate it it comes from the land and from other people you know yeah and and so we kind of move towards this ideal. We do it in so many ways. Like my generation, at least, was real keen on getting as far away from your parents as you could. Uh-huh. <laughs> I like guess as soon as you could. And so you moved out. You got a house. You move hundreds of miles away. And then you have a kid. And you're like, what the hell did I just do? I could have had, like, free daycare. <laughs> you know? like, and we do this kind of over and over with stuff where our independence through trying to seek individualization and independence, we kind of sacrifice the body of something that we came from, you know, whether it's the earth or your community, it's the same thing. Yeah. 
And so the quick fix things like, sorry about this geodesic dome people, okay. but for example, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's also something there about the experience of building your own home also as a way of connecting you to, to it. Mm. That's true. Yeah. Very important. Eh? And I, you know, I talk about this in the book a bit that this was a rite of passage for us in traditional cultures until uh, you became married and you helped the woman and you built the home for her. You weren't considered a man. And so, and in traditional cultures, universally, the house was seen as feminine and it was owned by the woman. And, you know, this is as it should be because, well, if men are flaky mm -hmm. and something goes on and they disappear or whatever, at least the family's stable then, right? The woman and the kids have a house yeah. and that's uh, all important. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's tough because not everybody necessarily will get to build their own house in their lifetime. Um, mm. Just, I think the scale of the number of people that there are makes that impractical, if not impossible. But, but I do <laughs> think that, that you can seek out an experience helping someone else build a house. There are, there are plenty of people mm. looking for hands for their tiny house builds or habitat for humanity or all these different ways that you can, get involved with building a house. And, and I, I agree that there is a real, there's a special feeling to it and a connection that you get from doing it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, I guess like anything else is those who are attracted to it will find a way for it mm -hmm. to happen mm -hmm. for them, you know? And really, I mean, what you're talking about is cities. Yeah. Because if you live out in the country and you have any degree of land, there's a good chance you could build your own tiny right, house, right. you know? And again, with the, with the powers that be the local municipalities and stuff like that, you're better not to call it a house. I exactly. outline this in the book yeah. as well. Just call it an outbuilding or a shed or something like yeah. that. And then they leave you alone. You can do whatever you want, you know? And I would really encourage that. I know, um, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, a disciple of Martin Pretel, and he talks about building like a tea house for yourself, an ancestral house. Okay. You know, and I think that's a really interesting idea. Like even if, like you said, you live in an apartment or maybe you already live in a, a house that's already made or whatever, you can still do this thing where the sacredness of creating a building and the power of creating mm -hmm. a building you can still do, you know, by creating a shed or a garage or something, a tea house. And uh, I, I think it's, yeah, the building thing is an important piece. Like I believe growing food, you know, is just a, an important piece of being a human. Being able to forage and find your food and, and you know, process it is uh, central to what we are. You, you've used the word sacred a few times and it, it's in the a book quite a bit and I'm curious if you can share do you do you kind of have a definition of of sacred yeah thanks for asking I guess again because we don't come from a spiritual culture mm -hmm. we come from very much a material culture we don't have many of these words and sacred has been that word is primarily been co-opted by the Catholic mm -hmm. Church historically. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people might feel kind of a bit of a repulsion from it. And I think this is from the way the word was used, which was in the sense of sacred and profane, of higher mm -hmm. and lower. And I totally don't mean it in that way. Yeah. But how I mean sacred is something that's divinely inspired. Okay. And that the very foundation of our culture, every aspect of it, agriculture, pottery, building, all these things were divinely inspired. They were given to us by the gods. And there was a price and there was an agreement about using all these things. Mm -hmm. And we've forgotten all of that. And we just kind of go and hog wild on everything. And, you know, there's huge consequences to this. So, the idea of kind of pulling back and kind of going 
well, really, wouldn't I want all my food to be sacred, my house to be sacred, Mm -hmm. my livelihood to be sacred, my relationships to be sacred? Isn't this what we're all actually after? No, so I know it takes a little bit of curving to find our way back to a a nice kind of like minimalism. I don't think there's a hard and fast definition. I think it's what's sacred for you and where it resonates in your heart is really what it's completely about. Nice. I I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, And I'm just, I apologize that I'm just like firing questions at you, but I, there's a, there, there are a bunch of notes and I, I, want to kind of make sure that the listeners get get exposed to some of these ideas um geomancy oh no i appreciate it i love the geomancy what is that and how do you do it strangely enough like we know the term a little bit better as feng shui yes um but geomancy is the western term for it okay arguably in the old country in ireland and scotland and these different places that most of us are from they understood these things very well and that the standing stones, uh, certain churches, certain towers are all built on what they call ley lines. And so ley lines is kind of like in our body. If you think about acupuncture and energy meridians, it's basically the exact same concept, but on the earth's surface. And this is true of the, you know, the Mayan pyramids and Egyptian pyramids and many, many sacred sites, as there already was an energy, a convergence of energy there. Mm-hmm. And so they utilized it. Now, the other side of that is that depending on the, the minerals underground, depending on the arrangement of buildings, the arrangements of roads, all these different things. You can kind of be on a sharp edge of something or on a blunt edge of something. In, mm. in other words, the energy flow around us isn't always hospitable to life. And so to kind of be able to assess how to arrange things or place a building or a path or anything has a certain resonance, right? And really, like if you're an artist or musician or something, you understand what I'm talking about already. Just one single stroke or one single note or anything. There's so much behind it, living inside it, Mm -hmm. you know? So. Yeah. And then I'm kind of thinking about geomancy in the context of of somebody with a tiny house on wheels where they might actually Mm. move it and it would be in Mm. different locations um, and just needing to pick the right spot you know, within wherever they're able to park it. Yeah, for sure. eh? Even, I mean, I think anyone who's done this with a van or even setting up a tent or whatever, uh, you know, it takes some doing to just find the right angle of things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously being level and all those things are kind of important. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I like this idea too, that even, Walking is, in a sense, we are electromagnetic beings. The earth is electromagnetic. So particularly if you're barefoot and you're walking, mm-hmm. you know, there is this whole interplay with the earth. You're, you're really interacting with the earth. Uh, years ago, actually, it, it was the first year we were building the roundhouse. Uh-huh. At one of those workshops, a lad showed up and his family had made their money big time by investing in these um electro like paramagnetic um bracelets and and uh, things that you put on your bed and i'm probably not getting the terminology right but anyways i think you know what i mean yeah these grounding things yeah and then he basically said or you could just go out to the park and take your shoes off, shoes and socks off, and you get all the same effect from this thing. And I was like, oh, okay, I, now I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But it's that so many of us, like, again, you think about running shoes or any kind of shoes, it's all rubber soles, you know? Yeah. So literally, we're we're insulating ourselves from the, the giving electromagnetic energy of the earth. Mm-hmm. And then simultaneously, we're all being subjected to the 4G and 5G mm-hmm. and all this shit. So 
again, it even becomes more important to be grounded and connect with the earth's frequencies. So in, in the book, and, and I, I do recommend it and I want to ask you where, where people can find it. Um, because it really does go through, it goes through the philosophy and then also the whole build really. Um, so it's, it's got a lot of practical and kind of spiritual and philosophical wisdom. Thanks. Yeah. So actually, yeah. Where can people, where can people find it? Sure. So, um, the sacred gardener, all one word, dot com okay. or dot CA. Mm-hmm. I think we have them both, but maybe dot CA shows you how out of the loop I am. Anyways, this is our website. Mm-hmm. It's available through the website at okay. this point. Okay. And that's it. Cool. Uh, we'll mail it to you. Love it. And now you sent it to me as a as a PDF. Is that an option too for people or, or is it only, oh, yeah. only print? Okay. Yeah, abs- cool. absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. So you can do a non-paper version of it. Nice. Um, so in the book, you do talk about your humanor toilet system, which is, you know, very popular for tiny houses as well. I was curious if you could mm. just talk us through kind of your version of the system because there's some, you've got some some things different than what, you know, Joseph Jenkins, for example, talks about in, in his system, namely with the kind of the two bucket system. Right. My two bucket system or his two bucket Your system? Your two bucket system. My two buckets yeah. is okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's been a long time since I read any yeah. of this stuff, so I can't really remember. But um, yeah, so if people have camped in in out in the wilds, they know thunder boxes. Mm-hmm. They're often referred to as, which is a rectangular box. Sometimes they're just one seater. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's two seats, so they can alternate. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's a sealed plywood box mm-hmm. painted looks quite nice and it fits two large buckets i guess they're five gallon buckets okay the the toilet seat is over one mm-hmm. generally in our household um this is all very specific and intimate but i guess we'll just go through with it yeah um that's fine. All my urine and my son's urine go out to the garden. Yeah. The ladies uh, go in the toilet mm-hmm. and then all our feces go in the toilet. Mm-hmm. So every time after you go, you dump like a, a yogurt container roughly full of sawdust, yep. which again, there's lots of local meals and usually they're giving the stuff away mm-hmm. because it's just uh, it's just in the way for them. So usually they're happy to have you come and take it. Yeah. It's also great garden mulch. You can you can use it for all sorts of things. Cedar happens to be, you know, a lot of the mills around me are cedar mills, so that's perfect because mm-hmm. it has the whole kind of um, you know, aromatic thing. Yeah. And yeah. uh the the general kind of equation as I as I understand it from that book is that if there's carbon, if there's the the material, the wood material, it will absorb all the sulfurs and nitrogens and these things that tend to create the stink. And it's mm-hmm. absolutely true. I mean, we have this in our house. It's not in a sealed bathroom or anything crazy like that. Nobody who comes over ever notices it. We don't notice it. it it's just, uh, you know, again... It's not carefree. It's not like you just get to shit into the water and flush the toilet and watch it go away. Yeah. You actually have to be responsible <laughs> for your waste. Yeah. And then, of course, it goes out to the piles. And I just have two piles, one for one year. And then at the end of that fall, like just a couple of weeks ago, that gets distributed to the fruit trees. Mm-hmm. So as, as compost, as manure. Another really important point that I learned from that book was that pathogens can't pass through the vascular part of a plant. Mm-hmm. The only way pathogens from, say, feces that haven't been fully composted would get on a plant is through splash. So 
you know, when you're talking about fruit trees or something like that, then obviously that's fine. Yeah. The other thing is when you're spreading it as a compost, any of the surface stuff, the sun is this incredible being that sterilizes stuff like crazy. So the truth is like, I've even heard that, you know, when people are in a, in a pinch up here, local people with their septic tanks in the winter, they'll spread it out on the snow and between the freeze and the sun, it actually gets sterilized. It's, it's a a solution to a bad situation, I guess. (laughs) You don't want to go there though. (laughs) Probably um, and, not and legal, but okay. <laughs> no, just, and not promoting the idea, but just to say there are these natural things that, that purify something like feces. It's only when we keep it in an anaerobic environment that it becomes very dangerous. And that's how things like uh, in Canada here, there was the Walkerton thing where by groundwater, a lot of people got poisoned and it was agricultural and it was this really really nasty thing that they do in agriculture now where the feces is liquefied kept anaerobic and then it's uh, sprayed out on the fields Mm. and it's all incredibly backwards stuff yeah yeah we have similar you know similar tensions here as well um there's a lot of a lot of agriculture a lot of dairy and and uh lake champlain is actually it has one of the largest watersheds for how big the lake is mm. and so we mm. you know the lake has unfortunately become polluted because of in in part because of a lot of the agriculture but also just because there's so much so much flowing into it from so far and wide which is it's kind of sad right um yeah so it can be turned around though, yes you know. yeah yeah and, and um People are working on it. I actually um, interviewed, um, and I'm not going to be able to remember his name right off the top of my head. I interviewed someone who de- who has developed now at industrial scale a composting technique for agriculture that 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 basically allows you know dairies to compost their manure in a safe way and actually use the heat from it to heat their buildings. Um, totally. Which is super cool. And the gas yeah. actually, if yeah. you, yeah, that's also quite possible yeah. for fuel. So again, these um, multi-layered things and things that work with many things in many ways, yeah. you know, the, the creativity, there's a demand for it, you know, a huge demand. Absolutely. Well, Stephen, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Um, one thing that I like to ask all my guests is um, just for recommendations for for either books or other resources. Um, are there any any books or resources or people who kind of inspired you or taught you in in this process of of kind of building the roundhouse? Yeah, I, I'm kind of um, maybe like yourself. I have a feeling in in your neck of the woods, but. There was a really strong back to the land kind of hippie movement up here in the sixties uh-huh. and seventies. Uh-huh. I'm not part of it. I'm not that old, but these guys were all like my older friends, 15, 20 years older than mm-hmm. me. And they all kind of, you know, tried all these different things kind of before I even came along. Yeah. And so I kind of get the vicarious uh, knowledge through a lot of people trying other stuff. And it's really why I run my own school now, right? Is I've been doing a lot of these things for 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you figure out the best way to do things. And it's priceless to have somebody in person tell you these things. It can save you years and years of you trying to figure stuff out. You know, we don't all have to reinvent the wheel. And a lot of this alternative building stuff has been worked out. You know, other people have done it. Trying to think in terms of um, books. Oh, I have a couple really lovely books, but they're just images. They're not so much how to actually build. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I I I can't uh, pull on anything there. That, that's totally fine. It's kind of an it's an open ended question. Yeah, yeah, and I'm you know it's a funny thing 
about five years ago, my eyes started to go uh-huh. and I thought, well, I've done enough reading anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone gets so upset when I say that, but it's true. I already know enough. I just have to act on what I know. Mm-hmm. I have to do what I know, you know? So it, it's a bit of a joke, but I think there's a bit of a reason when your eyes start to go, you know, it's like, yeah, you don't need to do that. And strangely enough, a lot of very fine work, like stuff like grafting, mm-hmm. I, I graft fruit trees and stuff. Mm. My hands know how to do it so well, I can do it better without my eyes. Wow. Because I can feel everything, wow. you know, whereas my eyes are kind of blurry and I'm like trying to figure something out. And this was a huge realization I had. And it's like, okay, you know, maybe that's okay that we start to kind of lose our senses a bit mm-hmm. as we get older. Where other ones get stronger. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Stephen Martin, thank you so much for for your time and for being a guest on the show today. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me, Ethan. I I hope there's some folks out there who uh, will order the book and who uh, will get things out of our our little talk. I, I think they will. Thank you so much to Stephen Martin for being a guest on the show today please head over to thetinyhouse.net slash 241 to see gorgeous photos of the roundhouse. Uh, just seeing them makes me want to go go hang out in there. It looks so comfortable and cozy and earthy. Um, so again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash 241. Uh, there you'll also find links to Stephen's website where you can buy the book and a complete transcript of today's episode. Don't forget to head over to thetinyhouse.net slash THC. That stands for Tiny House Considerations. If you're interested in registering for the course, uh, classes start on February 1st. They meet for the next eight Wednesday evenings from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern. And you basically get sometimes one-on-one attention from, from Lina Menard, my co-instructor, and me as we bring you through the entire tiny house decisions framework and help you plan your tiny house. Um, There's no better way to do it in 2023 than tiny house considerations. So I, I hope I see you there. Well, that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the tiny house lifestyle podcast.